0: So today is February 19th, 2013 In Cape Town, South Africa And we're going to look at the traditional and modern role of women In a spiritual society We're going to look at Varna, Ashram And spiritual So first, we're going to suggest that women have varna and ashram. There are people who say that women have neither, that there are brahman, sattris, vaishas, shudras, and women. (laughs) Now, the reason for saying this is because in the Bhagavatam, seventh canto, there's descriptions of the duties for Brahman and satriya, vaishya shudra, brahman, charikara, hastavana, and women. So therefore they say women must be a separate category from the others. There must be just some category, women, that doesn't fit into the varnas and ashram. So that's basically the argument, uh, the other argument that's sometimes made in favor of saying that women have no varna or ashram is that women are sometimes just classified with shudras. So those are the basic arguments. Oh, another one is that a woman's varna, that a woman only has one ashram, a brahasta ashram. I have not yet seen a girl child born in a wedding sorry <laughs> I'm still waiting for it. It hasn't happened yet. And then they will also say that the woman's varna is simply known by her husband. If the husband's a Brahmin, then she's called a Brahmin, but she isn't really one. And if your husband's etc., she's called etc., yeah. but she's not yeah. really one. And so forth. So I concluded quite a long time ago, it was sometime in the 80s that there were two big problems with understanding the position of women. One on the material side was to understand that women have varna and ashram. And the other was to see the difference between varna and ashram and spirituality. Basically to be able to distinguish between matter and spirit. ABC, beginning, Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2 and very nicely put. We did our program here, Material and Spiritual, right? So you remember that quote from Shiva Prabhupada in 930, that there's constitutional activities and conditional activities, and that that applies not only to males, but also to females. So that's basically the essence of what we're going to talk about tonight, that the women have constitutional activities or spiritual activities, and also conditional activities, and in those conditional activities, women's activities can also be divided up by varna and by ashram. All right, can someone give me some evidence for the fact that women have varna? I've given you the arguments against women having, having varna. Someone give me evidence that women have varna. Varna basically means your psychophysical nature. And the way that you make a livelihood, how you contribute economically to society, how you contri- contribute socially and economically to society. What is our Shastric evidence, or practical evidence, that women have Varna? I'm asking you. Firstly, there are so many demigoddesses engaged engage in activity or control it. Saraswati, in charge of the earth, Bhumi, in charge of the earth. So, if women look at those examples, and they can establish very easily that they have a purpose. Okay, very nice. I like this. In fact, I've always found it ironic that we have roles of females, higher female entities. You know, people talk about whether or not women can chant the Gayatri Mantra or give the Gayatri Mantra, and I always think... But the Gayatri Mantra is a woman. (laughs) The Kramagayatri Mantra is a woman. Yes? We see practically that women can do the same kinds of activities men can do. Okay, so we see practically that women have different natures just like men do. So it's our practical experience that some women are intellectuals, teachers, religious leaders. Some women are political administrators. some women are expert in business or in farming, some women are expert in crafts and entertainment that's our our practical experience we don't see that every woman has exactly the same talents and inclinations as every other woman yes? it's our practical experience I was just going to say mentions when uh, Krishna kidnapped Rukmini Krishna was fighting off the and Rukmini took the reins. Mm. They probably mentioned that Rukmini took the reins of the chariot while Krishna was fighting, so she obviously had some satriya training. Okay, yes. Women possess various qualities like humbleness, tolerance, or honor, things like that, which are assigned to different stages. Okay, so you can we can see not only by women's activities because varna is guna and karma, right? your varna, your your tendencies, your, your qualities and what you do. So you were saying women do different jobs and you said women also have different qualities. Okay, some other examples. Yes. Um, there's certain regulations in the Shastra concerning marriage. Mm. So for example, um, in terms of learning, if, if I can say higher or lower down the yes. system, So if women didn't have Varna, why would there be regulations about it? This is one of the strongest pieces of Shastric evidence. According to the Shastra, a man and woman of the same Varna should marry. And there's very strict rules about marriage between Varna, and especially what marriage is not supposed to take place. When the woman is higher. Well, that means the woman can be higher. Now some people will then say well, you know, the people who say that the woman's varna is determined by who she marries and that it's not really varna she's just called that you know, that if she marries a Brahmin she's just called a Brahmin but then how could you talk about equality of varna before marriage? It wouldn't make any sense then anybody could marry anybody and once you got married the woman would just become just like the man again, do we even see that? Do we see that anybody can marry anybody and the woman just molds herself to be like her husband? Now, of course, people might say, well, we don't see that because today women are also or something like that. But, you know, even in the Shastra, if you think about a Jamil, a Jamil was a Brahmana. He had a Brahmin wife. And then he left his Brahmin wife and married a Shudra woman. Did she become a Brahmin woman by marrying him? No. In fact, he became degraded. So there must be If they were determining varna before marriage, that means the woman had a varna before marriage. Then people will say, well, that was just her father's varna. So the man's varna is determined by his quality and works and the woman just by her father. What would be our argument to that? How is the varna of the woman determined before marriage? By doing a a horoscope. What would be the need of horoscope? If, it was, if her varna was determined simply by her father. And also, I mean, my argument to this is Krishna says, varna Mayashristam, Guna, Karma, Vibhagasham, Jastikaritamaphimam, Vijayakaritamaphimam. Right? He says, that by Guna and Karma, there's no verse after that that says, well, for women it's by janma." And somehow somebody took that verse out of the Bhagavad Gita. Okay? So that's another strong piece of evidence. Um, some other evidence is that Srila Prabhupada, oh, we'll go to the next uh, next thing, a, a, a story the story Prabhupada tells. It's a true story. He tells about one king who came home from the battle and knocked on the door of his palace. Said, I want to come in. Remember the story? And the queen says, You know, who's there? Oh, your husband's there. Oh, did he win? No, he lost the battle. Is he wounded? No then don't let him in, he's an imposter. <laughs> and so when the man got this message, he can understand, I have to go back and win. Or at least I have to be wounded trying. And Prophet says, gives this example of this woman as the kshatriya mentality. That she was exhibiting the guna of kshatriya So then some people say, all right, maybe women have guna, they have qualities of the varnas, but they don't have the work of the varnas. Now just think for a minute, if you say to someone, you have a propensity and and a mentality and a nature, but you do not have any way of exhibiting that nature. You can't act on that nature. What are you you saying? I mean, you're you're condemning people to a life of frustration. So would that be, you know, I, I really wonder if people who say this believe that there's a benevolent God. You know, so there's a God that designed that half of the human population don't have any facility for acting on or exhibiting or satisfying their particular nature. They have this nature, but they can't do anything with it. Now, of course, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that whatever nature you have, you have to act on it. That's what he tells Arjuna. He says, you can't repress your nature. He says, your choices are to use your nature for Krishna or to use your nature for Maya. But you can't just say, okay, I'm not going to use my nature. right? Didn't Krishna tell Arjuna this? Yes. So does that apply only to men? I think it applies even to animals. Yes. That every living being has their nature. Now I believe the people who say this, they're afraid that if you say women have varna, it means all the women are going to go out and get jobs, and neglect their families. That's, that's I believe that that's their fear. It's interesting also in Pritishil Prabhupada giving examples of women having varna, not only in terms of their guna or qualities, but in terms of their activities. The examples that he, the only examples I could find were that of shudras but he talks about how the woman is spinning the thread and the husband is weaving the cloth. In other words, they have a cloth business and both the wife and the husband are working in the cloth business. Or he talks about a man selling pots that he makes and how the husband and wife are both making the pots and they're both going out and selling the pots and the man's pulling a cart with the pots and his wife and son are sitting on top of the carts and so forth. And proper presents this as an ideal family life where the husband and wife are working together in fact, one of my conclusions about why it's best that people marry who are of the same varna, one is psychological, because the different varnas have different psychologies, and the other is practical, that the idea is that the husband and wife can then work together. So if they have vastly different varnas, it's going to be difficult, okay? they're not going to be able to work as a team. Now in the Mahabharata, we have Jopadi explaining, Jopadi was the queen of Yudhisthira, she wasn't doing the work of a weaver woman. You know, we, we, really, we ask people who say women have no varna, do you really think the wife of a weaver and the wife of a, of a king have the same activities? So she explained that she was managing the treasury. She said she was the only one who knew how much money was coming in and how much money was coming out. I mean, It sounds like she was a secretary of the treasury. She also says that she was managing the royal household. Now, it couldn't have been a household, but she said it was 100,000 people. So it sounded like it was like a royal city and that she was managing everyone in the royal city. So she was doing such real work. And I mean, since the beginning of recorded history, wealthy women have hired servants to do the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry, and even a lot of the child care, and they're engaged in activities. Even in Islam, we have Mohammed's first wife, you know, was a merchant. And in fact, there's a description in the Bible of the the ideal woman who's a merchant. The the perfect woman who's hard to find, and she's a merchant. Interesting. You know, sometimes we have this idea that, you know, all the woman is doing is, is cooking and cleaning and so forth. And if you think about it, who only has that as their occupation? What person has just cooking, cleaning, laundering, and child care as their occupation? Yes? I do. No, I mean, what kind of... <laughs> I mean, what, what are... People who have that as their sole occupation for their lifetime. What, what do we call that? Uh, yeah, a slave, pair or a Yeah, domestic servant, not a slave, please. <laughs> a domestic servant. I hope you guys pay your domestic servants here in this country. We don't have... I mean, I did see a sign up in the university that said you should be careful of human trafficking, but I do assume most people pay their... That's a domestic servant. And all over the world, I mean, in some places more than others. Some parts of the world, there are many, many domestic servants. In other parts, only the wealthiest people have domestic servants. But that's somebody. They do the cooking, they do the cleaning, they do the laundry, and they even do the childcare. Sometimes we've got more than one. Sometimes one person comes in just to do the laundry or one person's just doing the childcare or something like that. But that's a domestic servant. There's nothing wrong with being a domestic servant. It's a perfectly respectable and valuable occupation in society. But do we really think that every single female, just by virtue of being a female, is qualified for nothing more than that for her entire life? No. So therefore, we can say that women have varna. Now, traditionally, the women didn't go out to work. But you know what? Neither did most men. Chanika says, happy is the man who doesn't leave home to work. You know, if you ran a school, you ran a school out of your house. If you were a farmer, you, your farm was in your backyard. If you're a craftsperson, you know, we you still have. Don't you, know, you still have, even in this country? No, we do in America. People who have their shop downstairs and their residence upstairs, right? Their shop in the front and their residence in the back. I stayed with one family in Delhi years ago. The, the husband had passed away. The elderly mother was managing all the finances of the business. She had six sons, and four, two of them had moved away and did something else, and four of them ran their clothing shop and the clothing shop was on the ground floor, and then on each floor was a different son and his wife, and the mother also had a floor. But they said they couldn't even get, you know, one rupee without going through the mother, that she controlled all of the money for the business. That's kind interesting. So before we go on to ashram... Once we accept... Oh, oh, just to back up a little bit. So this idea was that both the husband and the wife were working out of the house. And you had extended family. You know, when you have extended family, when the mother-in-law and father-in-law or the mother and father and some of the aunts and uncles all live in the same house or right next door or right down the street, then you don't have to have one person who has all the responsibility for all the childcare, all the cooking and all the cleaning and all the laundry. First of all, most people have some servants to do some of those things. And then second of all, you have shared responsibility among the family. So my older sister married into a family like that. She married a man from Yemen who was the oldest of ten children. And their family, mother and father and the children and the grown-up children were married. They all lived in the same area. I mean, eventually some of them moved away. And the children could just go from one house to the other, you know, to their aunties and their uncle house and the whole family was raising the children. Again, they would share cooking and and they would share so many of the responsibilities. They kept goats and they would share responsibility for milking the goats and so forth and taking care of them and taking care of the farm. And in this way, people have time also to do things besides just housework and child care. Of course, in modern society, there's not even enough to keep women busy in the home anymore. You know, when people only have one, two, or three children, you know, it used to be the average number of children a woman had was six. You know, some people had 12 or 15. There, were my, it was my great-grandmother who had 21 children, 18 of whom lived to maturity. So, you know, when people are only having a couple of children, then unless you homeschool your children, you're not going to be able to spend your whole life Doing housework, you know, and you have your washing machine, and you have your this machine, right? Be, what are you going to do? So the women were just staying home without any outlet for their propensities. If you think about saying, start in the 1950s, when things were, when people really started having small numbers of children, and their home became automated, you know, that gave rise to the whole women's movement in the 70s, 60s, and 70s because all of a sudden women lost they had lost with the industrial revolution their home-based occupations you know no longer were women weaving and making clothes at home no longer were they were they contributing economically from the home starting in the late 1800s if you needed to if you wanted to contribute economically and of value to the society you had to go out of the house so women had lost their ability to contribute to society from the home, and they had even lost most of their household duties. They were bored out of their brains, right? They didn't want to just, you know, I didn't, okay, I'm just going to stay home, be my husband's sex object, and you know, what, what, what else was their job? Watching the soap operas on television, and eating chocolate. You know, I mean, what were they supposed to do? So then they started saying, okay, we really want to go out in the workforce. But pre-industrial revolution, people had their occupation at home. You know, which meant that the man was also more involved in the care of the children, because he was home. It wasn't just that the woman was just running the household. You know, the woman was just taking care of the children, and the man had some other occupation. So the man was more involved in the household, and the woman was more involved also in making a living. And everyone felt that they were contributing to society. Okay. So, once we accept that women have varna, we solve a number of problems. First of all, we allow for full engagement in service for women. And we see that that's what Srila Prabhupada did. Srila Prabhupada engaged women according to their propensity. In devotional service just as he engaged men according to their preference. And Prabhupada actually wrote that. He said, We give equal spiritual opportunity to both men and women, that both men and women have various talents to contribute so in service. One of my favourite quotes this is where Prabhupada says, Everyone has some extraordinary talent and to serve Krishna with one's extraordinary talent means successful life. Prabhupada did not say all the men have an extraordinary talent, and none of the women have any. Every woman has exactly the same talent as every other woman. No, that's not what he said. He said, everyone has some extraordinary talent. And to serve Krishna with your extraordinary talent means successful life. That means everyone. And Srila Prabhupada actually said, in management, he said, be careful not to kill the spirit of enthusiastic service, which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. Which means each individual has a spontaneous way in which they want to be of service. And it is important in a spiritual society not to kill, Prabhupada said, do not kill that spirit of enthusiastic service which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. So we can kill that spirit in many ways, but one of them is by saying, well, you don't have any talents. You don't have any spontaneous, individual way of doing service. You know? That's the kind of body you have. That's the kind of work that you're supposed to do. And that's the beginning, and middle, and end of that. Knowing that women have varna answers a lot of the questions about, uh, not completely, those are other topics so I don't know what we'll get into, but statements about degrees of lust or degrees of intelligence. You've got to be comparing men and women of the same varna. Now, obviously, a Brahmin woman is less lusty and more intelligent than a Shudra man. Duh. Why are you not supposed to marry a higher woman to a lower man? And you're supposed to marry equals. Actually, Krishna tells meaning this. He says marriage should be between equals. And it's interesting, one of the items that Krishna lists is equal in renunciation, that men and women should be equal in renunciation. Now, it's sometimes permitted, though not even very much desired, that a man can marry a woman of a lower varna. Not so much desired because she can pull him down. And also they can just both be unhappy. But it's forbidden for a man to marry a woman of a higher mind. Why? Because she's going to be more intelligent than he is. And she's going to be less lusty, she's going to be, be more renounced. She's going to be more renounced, she's going to be more intelligent. But the psychology of the woman is to follow the man, and the psychology of a man is he wants to be the leader of the household. So a woman who is of a higher nature then... In order to keep peace in the home, it has to act as subordinate to someone lower than her. It degrades her. Does that make sense to everybody? So that would be harmful to her. And out of respect for her, a woman's not supposed to marry a lower man. So there's still concepts like this all over the world. Sometimes these concepts are put in terms of race, right? If people think that one race is higher than another. Just like when you had this apartheid and people, you know, you were allowed to associate with someone lower than you, but not higher, right? The doctors could treat somebody lower than them, but not higher than them. They had this concept. People were particularly upset if they thought a lower man married a higher woman, yes. Of course, their idea of higher and lower was ridiculous. But the concept is valid. Or even this idea that a very wealthy woman should marry a very poor man. I mean, this is even still in society, isn't it? Or, or a high-class, intelligent, very educated woman should not marry an uneducated man. You know, We don't so much look down if the man is more educated than the wife, or the man is more intelligent than the wife. But it, don't we still have this concept? You know, and sometimes there's these romantic stories about the high-class woman who falls in love with the low-class man, yes? And the family's against it, and society's against it, but because she's in love, but the principle is that generally it should be avoided because the woman who's high class is actually high class if, she's, I mean, if you're defining class properly. And again, we don't see in our experience that every woman is less intelligent than every man. Is that our experience? No. And we don't see that every woman is more materially inclined than every man. Certainly not. Is that our experience? No. You have to be comparing within the same category. All right, now let's look at the idea of ashram. So again, we have people, and and I hear this a lot, that women's only ashram is the grace to be married, is to be the ashram. Now again, that's ridiculous from a practical point of view, because you don't, you know, even if you have societies where people are married young or where they're engaged as children, they're not engaged as newborns. There's some training and schooling that female children get before marriage. Now, it may not be exactly the kind of brahmachari ashram that the boys have, but there was some kind of training. We have Rudmini who wrote Krishna a letter. We have even the gopis who are Vaishya girls, they're writing and reading letters. We have the Vaishya women who are chanting mantras to protect Krishna. No, and they knew various sciences we have the story of Chitraleka who was a great yogini she knew sciences of mystic yoga and she knew all the kinds of living entities that lived all over the universe so obviously there must have been education right also the gopis talk about uh, that Krishna's food sounds like a yogini chanting mantras so obviously there was education At least in former times, at least there was higher education for the higher classes of both men and women. And of course, they would also get education in their particular occupation. That's okay, as long as they're not screaming. Are any of us absolutely positive that we're not going to take birth again? But you're 100% positive that little child making noise may be us in 50 years. Please be, please be kind. <laughs> please treat the children as we would like to be treated 50 years from now. So women obviously had some sort of training and education in their youth. Little, even though you may be living with your mother and father, you're not exactly, you're not a wife. You're not know, in the grahastha Ashram as a wife. And of course, at least the higher class women also entered into the vanaprastha Ashram. In fact, there's descriptions in the Bhagavatam of women in the Vanaprastha Ashram. So one of the main descriptions is in the fourth canto, in the story of King Paranjana, that Paranjana dies thinking of his wife and he takes birth as a woman, Madarikshana, and he marries, she marries King Malayadwaja. And after Malayadwaja renounces the throne, he goes to the forest and his wife Madarikshana follows and it's described that she lets her hair get matted, she wears old and torn clothing, she's serving without speaking, and she's also entering into austerities and penances. There's descriptions also of women without husbands, like Kunti, where she had become a widow at a very young age, and when Dhritarashtra and Gandhari went in the forest as Vanaprastha, she also followed and she also was engaged in austerities and gave up her body in the forest. We have, of course, when the Pandavas renounce the kingdom and those renunciates, that Jopati and Subhadra also go and perform austerities and renunciation. So there's definitely descript- many, many descriptions. Archie and Prithu is another one, that when, when King Prithu renounces the kingdom, that his queen, Queen Archie, goes. And at that point, they're not in the Grahasta ashram. And we also have examples of women whose husbands take sannyas, where they enter into an ashram of renunciation, like Vishnu Priya, where when Chaitanya Mahabhu took sannyas, although she was only 16 years old, that she dressed very simply, she ate very simply, she was spending her time, she worshipped a deity of Mahaprabhu, and she was spending her time mostly chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. Now, we also have some examples, although there's certainly much fewer, of women who were lifetime renunciates, there are two mentioned in the Bhagavatam, I can't remember their names. Who were impersonalists? We also have, of course, in recent history, Gundamati Goswami, who was a princess, Sachi, and she refused to marry. When her parents died, uh, she became queen, and very quickly she turned over the kingdom to her ministers. Went to Radakund, they performed austerities, was initiated. They went to Puri, and herself, of course, became one of our Gaudiya Vaishnava gurus. So those examples are a little bit more unusual of women who never married, but there are such examples. Ramanujacharya, for example, had about 10,000 disciples, and of them 300 were renounced women. So some of them were women who had never married, and some of them were women who were renounced after being in the Rasta Ashram. So when we look at the fact that women have ashrams, we see that women, just like men, go through a spiritual progression in life in terms of training and renunciation. And in fact, we see this. You know, it makes sense. I mean, one, I won't mention who it is, but anyway, one of our very senior sannyasis is writing a book and he asked me to, to go through it and edit it and, and he was writing about the stages of life. So he was writing about how a man is married and then a man takes to renunciation. And I said, Marge, you can't just talk about a man because guess what? If the man renounces, guess what? His wife has to renounce too. Well, what's going to happen? The man's going to be take up the renounced ashram and go to the forest, and the, the woman's still going to be, you know, wearing fancy saris, eating with her husband? He's not there anymore. He's in the forest. How is she going to continue in the grahasta ashram? Even if she stays with her grown-up children, even if the man is traveling, she's staying at home, the woman whose husband in is away is in a different position. She's in a position of renunciation. So as soon as you say that the man has to renounce, immediately you're implying the woman has to renounce. So this, of course, implies that women, at least the higher classes of women, are capable of renunciation, and not only capable, but will be naturally inclined to it. Just like, I mean, what one will experience when one hits middle age is there's a, just like, exactly like, when one hits youthfulness, there's a natural desire to marry and procreate. Yes? It's natural. Correct? At the same time, when one hits middle age, there's a natural desire to renounce. And that even happens in modern society. People just don't recognize what it is. You know, people start getting this, what they call it, a midlife crisis because they don't know what to do with it. If you knew what to do with it, it wouldn't be a crisis. they are like, oh, it's time to take us. What's the crisis? you know or people think oh now i've got to marry somebody else right they start feeling detached from their family and many times they think oh let me get another spouse or let me change career because they no longer feel that inclination if not only one gets detached from married life one gets detached from occupation also really the varnas are only exhibited in the grihastha ashram varnas is how you contribute to society so, in the Brahmachari ashram, you're being trained for your varna, or you, and you're being trained for one. The Prabhupada says Brahmachari is training for, it, for the attached and the detached. So, the Brahmachari is being trained to enter into the, either the Agrahasta ashram, the vanaprastha ashram, or the Sannyasta ashram. And the Brahmachari is also being trained, Prabhupada says, in the second canto, that Gurukula is for teaching specific values, for teaching values of life along with specific training for a livelihood. So the brahmachari is being trained up in a specific training, Prabhupada says, for a livelihood and also to be prepared to go on to the other ashrams. Okay. So therefore, women should be trained for both varna and ashram. Also, there's a natural progression that just like one naturally, most people naturally want to enter the grahasta ashram, most people naturally want to enter a renounced ashram at a certain point, both the man and the woman. All right. So how to start implementing this? Some of this is can be implemented by thinking about home businesses. I know many years ago in America when the homeschooling movement really started a lot of the families who were propounding homeschooling were also propounding home businesses. And they were talking a lot about going back to concepts of pre-industrial society with extended family and home-based businesses. You know, what Srila Prabhupada would call cottage industries. And this, again, can be with any varna. So if we want to have a situation where the children are cared for and there's nutritious home-cooked meals, the father gets to be involved in the family, the woman gets to exercise her different propensities, and we work with the natural order of things, then we need to start looking at more natural-based ways of earning a living and ways of earning a living that can be done from home, where ideally the husband and wife can work together, or at least the husband and wife can work on similar things And if that can't be done, where at least the husband and wife can both have businesses out of the home or near the home. And if we can't have extended biological family, then we can try to have extended spiritual family And, and work with each other to support each other. Now, of course, there's many benefits for the children of this kind of life. First of all, the children get more association with their father, not just that the father leaves home early in the morning, goes to work, and comes back late at night and they have no real relationship with them. The woman gets to be more satisfied because she's exercising her propensities. The husband and wife have some bond other than just their uh, household life. The children get care by a number of different people within the society, so there's not so much burden on just one or two people. And if you have home-based businesses, then you have what we talked about the other day in terms of raising your children... Which is? Anybody remember? One of the four things. Okay, you got a relationship. You got, you're more likely, not necessarily, but you're more likely that there'll be relationships of love and trust between the children and adults in the community. What else? Meaningful service. Meaningful service. So you're much more likely, if you have home-based businesses, that the children will be engaged in meaningful service from a young age. And they're going to get practical training, specific training for for a livelihood. They're going to feel a part of the community because they really are a part of the community. Again, this was done all over the world. You could understand this would probably decrease crime too, wouldn't it? If children had some meaningful service. If every I mean everybody needs to feel that they're making a meaningful contribution to society ultimately that's a spiritual need right. also in this kind of system you'd have more care for elderly you'd have more care for people who are disabled and people can work more from home and you have extended family so that's looking at basically the material side of women's life and i should tell my And i see that by denying that women have varna and ashram we present a material side of women's life that's not really attractive to very many people perhaps it's attractive to men who want to have basically uh, you know their wife as a their domestic servant I see also that this conception that every single woman is only and solely a domestic servant, and that's all she's ever going to be for her life, it means that one is not seeing women as people, or even this concept that the woman's going to become just whatever her husband is. It's sort of like thinking that you know, when you're a woman, you're just some sort of a blob you know, you don't have any real personality or any real desires or you just sort of become whatever situation you're in. And, and in thinking about why people think like that, I've had to conclude that because the essence of our conditioned life is this concept that I am God and I'm going to exploit material nature. Now, material nature is a person and material nature is a woman. I'm going to be God, I'm going to be the supreme male, and I'm going to exploit the female, which is opulence. Stream means the goddess of fortune, it means all opulence, beauty, wealth, strength fame, knowledge, and renunciation. That I'm going to be the master. And to do that, we tend to think of material nature as just dead. And the same way we think of the female... Was representing material nature, as dead. The female becomes just a thing. As soon as I think of a woman as being a soul like me, you know, a soul who has feelings and desires and personality, how can you exploit someone who has feelings, desires, and personality? Can't you stop, right? And in the fourth canto, womanizing is compared to animal hunting. So people who exploit women are compared to people who kill and eat animals. And when people kill and eat animals, they're thinking the animal's just a thing, just an object for my enjoyment. And it's quite interesting that this conception is so deep-rooted. And of course, there are women who think of themselves as just exploitable objects also. A woman may think of herself as just an object, and thinking by this way, she'll get power over the material nature. The way that women are in Maya is thinking, I am material nature. I control material nature as my own body. Instead of I control material nature as my wife or girlfriend, I control material nature as my own body. And I'm going to use my body to manipulate others and have power to do what I want. And you see that this this is our most deep-rooted, essence of our material attachment I am God and I am controlling material nature so it's not surprising that this conception persists even in religious people and you see in in every religious society of the world there are certain members who hold it you know they may let go of everything else but they're holding on to this that you know women are just blobs They're, they're just objects they're objects of desire and enjoyment or their objects to be subservient or their objects to be controlled in some way and if they're ever allowed to exhibit their nature and their personality there'll be some kind of a catastrophe and of course if you ask these people well exactly what kind of catastrophe will happen they can't tell you I just had a I, just a few months ago I had a long conversation with somebody in India like this he wasn't Indian but it was yeah. the conversation happened in India And he kept saying, you know, it will be terrible. He said, well, what exactly will be terrible? What terrible thing will happen? It will just be terrible. How will it be terrible? You know, he finally got really upset and walked away. (laughs) So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that there's always going to be people who particularly look at women and say... Every woman is exactly the same as every other woman in her desire and nature and the, the work and the place that she has in the world. You know, we don't even think that about dogs. Do we? Do we think that every dog just has the job of every other dog? You imagine? Right? Okay, now that's not the end of the story. Because we don't only have conditional activities, right? Rabbi says we have two activities. We have conditional activities and we have constitutional activities because we're not this body. I mean, we have this body, we have this mind, and this body and this mind has a certain nature. But it's not me. There's also a me. And the me has also activities. Now, what's interesting is that on the platform of the real me, everyone's activities are equal. It doesn't mean they're all exactly the same. In fact, we were talking the other day how every soul is a unique individual. Yes, we were talking about that here? We talked about Lord Brahma stealing the cows? Yes, Yes. we did. I know each of us is unique, and the particular service that we offer to Krishna is unique. It's not that in our perfected state every one of us is going to be you know, a blade of grass in Vrindavan, or every one of us is going to be a manjari Gobi, or every one of us is going to be a coward boy, and we're all going to look the same, we're all going to think the same, we're all going to do exactly the same thing. And even in our spiritual service, in this body, you know, some people are going to really love to sing bhajans, and some people are really going to love to dress the TV. Even if you talk about the nine processes of devotional service. Some people are really going to love to study the scripture. I mean, everyone should have kirtan, and everyone should study the scripture. But some people are going to love to study the scripture. And they're going to want to go to lots and lots of scripture classes and know the scripture inside and out, right? And other people are not going to have that much interest in that. They're going to have more interest in doing kirtan all day, and they're going to want to do kirtan for ten hours a day. And somebody else is going to do It doesn't make sense to everybody. And Robert talks about this in the Nectar Devotion, where he says that one should do the nine processes according to one's taste. More than once, actually. At the same time, all souls have the same basic activities. It's not, you can't say, like, materially, well, one person's an intellectual, one person's a political leader, one person's a businessman or farmer, one person's a craftsperson, entertainment. On the spiritual level, everybody studies about Krishna, Here's about Krishna everybody can talk about Krishna everybody can chant the holy name of the Lord everybody can worship the deity everybody can study the scriptures, everybody can go to the holy places, everybody can serve the devotees everybody can become the Lord's friend everybody can surrender to Krishna we don't say well you can surrender to Krishna but you can't <laughs> you can chant but you can't Now, of course, we do have levels of spiritual qualification. We do have levels of purity, and we may restrict certain services according to levels of purity. So, for example, we have rules about who can cook for the deity, who can dress the deity, and so forth. But that shouldn't be dependent on the body. You know, the Prabhupada was asked about women worshipping the deity, like women worshipping the deity of Lord Chaitanya, and he was asked you know, is it proper that the women are doing service for Mahaprabhu, who's a sannyasi? Prabhupada said, well, first of all, we worship him in his grahasta mood. He said, but second of all, deity worship is on the spiritual platform. Otherwise, we have to say, why can men worship a deity of Rayarani? Just imagine. But, it's on this, but Prabhupada would emphasize it's on the spiritual platform. So we may look at qualifications, spiritual qualifications for certain services. Now what's really important and and please try to get this because it's really, 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 really really important is that material activities used in Krishna service can also be called spiritual activities and they may have the same effect as directly spiritual activities but they are still material activities used in Krishna service. So driving the car for Krishna is not like hearing, chanting, remembering, worshipping, surrendering. It's a material activity used in Krishna's service. So everyone can chant Hare Krishna, but not everybody can drive the car. Right? A child can chant Hare Krishna, a child can surrender to Krishna, but a child can't drive the car. So one of the big problems with understanding the roles of men and women is figuring out what's matter and what's spirit. And I see it as a huge problem. Because we'll say, spiritually we're equal, materially we're different. Of course, even spiritually we're different. But materially we're not equal. We're not just different. Materially you can talk about higher and lower. I'm I'm sorry, but you can. Some people are smarter than others. They just are. We might not like that and, and... Whatever, but it it just is the truth. Some people are more attractive than others, you know. Yes, some people are taller than others. Some people are more athletic than others. Some people are healthier than others. Just, just is. And you can't say that those things are not better or worse. That's ridiculous. Of course, being healthy is better than being sick. I mean, who's going to say, oh, it doesn't matter? I mean, we're, we're coming to this sort of thing. It doesn't. People who are disabled are. I'm sorry nobody would would choose to be disabled they're just as much of a person on a a personal level they're equal but to say that someone who's disabled has equal abilities to an athlete is absurd yes? it's just absurd so on the material level there is higher and lower you can't get away from it now, very few of us are higher in everything or lower in everything. You know, most of us are higher in some things and lower in some things and medium in some things. But there are those kind of distinctions. And you could say that everyone has, an, has a contribution to make to society, but not everyone even has an equal material contribution to make to society. On the material level. We just don't. That's according to our Karma. So materially, things are both different and unequal. Spiritually, things may be somewhat different, but they're all equal. Things are, they're, they're more individual. They're individual, but they're all equal. They're all of equal value. And everyone as a soul can have equal access to any of the items of devotional service, whereas materially, you cannot have equal access to everything. You just can't. I was at Manipur recently for a festival and the way that they cook for a crowd, they cook outdoors on wood fires and they use these huge humongous pots and the way they move, the, the pots are shaped like a lota kind of shape like this, with a very narrow neck that, that spreads out and the way they move the pots around is they have these huge tong-like things that, I mean huge, that go around the neck of the pot and then they're carrying this big heavy metal pot full of food from one wood fire to another. And when I saw this, someone looked at me and said, none of the ladies cook for festivals. (laughs) So on on the material level, there's higher and lower. And certain things, certain people just don't have access. It doesn't matter how spiritually pure you are. You can be completely spiritually pure, but you may not have the muscle mass of somebody else. You may not have the height of somebody else. You may not have the intelligence of somebody else. Well, one person may know ten languages, maybe you only know one language. And the person knowing one language, they may be more pure than the person knowing ten languages, but they can't do the service of translating the book because they don't know the language. So materially... We don't all have access to do the same service for Krishna. We just don't. But spiritually, anybody should have access to doing any service for Krishna. Spiritually, it should just be a matter of individual what? Choice and taste. The different spiritual services we do should be a matter of our spiritual taste, although we do also require spiritual purity. Materially, it's a matter of our taste and our ability. And some of that ability, we can do something about it, but we can't. So is it important to distinguish what's a purely spiritual service, where everyone has equal ability, and it's a question of your purity and your taste, and a material activity used for Krishna, where everyone does not have equal ability and equal access? Would that be important to make that distinction? What activities are in Varna and Ashram, and what activities are spiritual. So this is a huge problem. It's huge. Because often one will say when men and women are spiritually equal but materially unequal, and it's not just men and women, frankly, every single individual is materially <laughs> unequal. What I see sometimes happens is we try to make equal equal access on the material activities and unequal access in the spiritual activities. So I'm going to take a little risk here. You know, we don't mind at all, even the people who are really into, you know, all the women are inferior and they're all just blobs and none of them have any personality. I've never seen one of those people object to women giving money. They've never said, How'd you make that money? Did you run your own business? We'll take it back. (laughs) Interesting. So, I was once visiting one center that really didn't like the idea of women preaching. I was the first woman ever to give a class there. And uh, I got some heavy reactions from some people. Really heavy, really nasty. But while I was there, they were going to build a new guest house, and while I was there, a local woman architect who was going to donate her services came and everybody treated her with all fanfare. And I thought, that's really weird. That's really strange. And we've seen sometimes in our Hare Krishna movement that people don't mind at all engaging women in activities that are really unsuitable for women at all. Uh, just because, you know, we want money or we want manpower, and then denying women equal access to spiritual activities. I, I've seen it happen many, many times. Now, why is there a confusion sometimes? Anybody have any idea why we'll sometimes confuse the material, the material activities done for Krishna and the spiritual activities? There's some no simple reasons why we confuse things we think with this body okay we can't we haven't gotten the beginning lesson what's the difference between matter and spirit that's probably the biggest reason yes our experience just like we've been experiencing living there and that was terrible and then yeah so we just separate the two okay we separate them wrongly somehow we draw the line in the wrong place okay some other ideas yeah okay Why do we sometimes think a material activity is spiritual and a spiritual activity is material yeah? yes but what, 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 what some idea of what confuses us we misunderstand the philosophy, though. okay we talked about that basic misunderstanding of the philosophy okay I'm it. I'll help you out a little bit deity worship is that a spiritual activity or a material activity okay can anybody give me a reason why it's a material activity please Yes. Because anybody can do it. If anybody can do it. If it's only dependent on spiritual purity, then it's a spiritual activity. But why would why could it also be material activity? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is he doing material things, like cooking? Just no. Material? According to Shastra, according to the scriptures, why could Devi worship... Yes. Is it because of the consciousness in which you are doing... Absolutely. But what, according to scriptures... Would make, could deity could, could worship also be put in the category of a material activity? It's the activity of whom? Materially. Krihastas. Krihastas, who are also Brahmins. It's one of the six occupations of a brahmana. If you look at materially someone who's in a brahman varna, it's one of their occupations, is worship of the deity. In fact, if you look at many of the occupations of a brahmana they look the same as the spiritual activities. Studying the scriptures, teaching the scriptures, worshipping the deity, teaching others to worship the deity, right? And what you said is correct. depends on your consciousness. Am I doing these as devotional service for Krishna? Or am I doing these because I'm a Brahmin and is the way of making my livelihood? So I see that as a big problem in differentiating what's material and what's spiritual. Because brahminical, not all, there are some brahminical activities that are very different, like being an astrologer or being a physician. So those are brahminical occupations, but they're not in the process as a devotional service. But some of the brahminical occupations are also activities of devotional service. And that can happen even at the Sudra platform. So suppose you're a musician. Suppose you're a musician, and you like to chant Hare Krishna, and that's how you maintain yourself. Are you doing your Shudra work offered to Krishna? Or are you engaging in just the nine processes of devotional service? Hard to say, isn't it? Depends on your consciousness. If you're thinking, I'm a musician and I want to do music to maintain myself, but since I'm going to do music to maintain myself, why not chant about Krishna? Then it's a Shudra activity offered to Krishna. If you want to chant about Krishna because you want to fall in love with Krishna and you want to just serve Krishna purely, and people start giving you donations for kirtan, and people start inviting you all over the place for kirtan, and every place you go you get donations, and you're invited to so many places, you don't have time to do every other, any other work. And people give you so many donations, you don't need to have any other work, and all of a sudden you find, I'm just doing kirtan, I don't need to have any other work. Then that's one of the nine processes of devotional service. Does that Does that make sense to everybody? But can you see why it's confusing? So when we say that women should have full access to any of the nine processes of devotional service, people sometimes look at them and say, no, 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 this is just for the male wellness. They'll see aspects of devotional service as material and say, no, no, women can't have access to those because that's not part of the woman's dharma. And conversely, we see that sometimes they'll say, oh yeah, sure, women can do that, although it's actually something material. So this is extremely important to be able to distinguish because we want to have a society where everybody, male, female, old, young, you know, from this culture, from this race, this intelligence level, this whatever, has equal access to the nine processes of devotional service or you could say the 64 ungas of devotional service which are expansions from the nine as given in the nectar devotion. So it would behoove us to know what the 64 ungas of devotional service are. Yes? Yes? If we're going to distinguish matter from spirit it's not just a matter of, of cleansing our consciousness. I mean it is possible again in deep pain in for Krishna to give us knowledge without studying the scriptures. But it would be a good idea to study the scriptures. Yes. Because they are delineated these are purely spiritual activities that have nothing to do with the material body. That anyone who has the purity and the desire can do them. That they're not dependent on any material circumstance and these are the activities that you can offer to Krishna you can offer to Krishna according to the particular body and mind that you have but some people are going to be able to do some of them and some aren't and it doesn't matter how much you want to you know I could want to cook for the feast in manipur but I'm not going to be able to do it it doesn't matter how much I want doesn't matter whether, whether I enjoy it or something. I just, just physically can't do it. Now you can see that if we can have a society really run by these principles, people would be very happy. Because all of us need to feel that, okay, that we have a place. That's a spiritual desire. It's ultimately a spiritual desire because we have our place with Krishna. We have our eternal place with Krishna. We have a place that we belong. And we will not feel satisfied. Just like Chilagrabha gives the example of the baby that's hungry. You know, you can pass the baby from person to person, uh, but until it's in the mother's arms, drinking the mother's milk, it's not going to be happy. So our ultimate happiness is only going to be from within when we're in our rightful place with Krishna. But we also... I mean, materially, you can never be fully satisfied even by being in your right place. But materially, we also have to be in our right place. And if we're in our right place materially for Krishna, then even the material side of life will be happy for us. Prabhupada often talked about living happily in this world and attaining liberation. Krishna says that in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that by sacrifice, one lives happily in this world and attains liberation. We do not have a philosophy that you should be miserable in this world, I remember that yogi who gave the four benedictions and to the brahmachari doing austerities he said don't live and just die because of this life you're suffering but next life you can go to my but for the devotee he said live or die it doesn't matter because the devotee's tapasya is taking my propensities and using it for Krishna that's the devotee's tapasya and avoiding grossly sinful activities so this is true this principle is true for everybody this principle is true for everybody now our modern society is really a mess you know, I, I see that modern, modern society all over the world is just a mess it's a mess in terms of ashram for sure you know people are marrying later and later and later and what are they doing while they're waiting to get married yes not nice things Correct? Right? So it's not that everybody settled it till they're 35. So the people are doing the wrong things at the wrong time. People are supposed to get married when they're young, have their babies when they're young, and then when they feel ready to renounce, the babies are all grown up and they can renounce. Not that, you know, when, you're, when you start getting the mentality of renunciation, your kids are only two years old. And that can be. And we don't know the science of occupation. Now, I've also meditated, this is sort of a tangential topic, but I've also meditated on why the thousands of occupations are categorized into these four. Because if you say, okay, all these occupations are in this category, and all these are in this category, and all, these are, category, and all these are in this category, in those categories there's a science of how to, how to offer my particular occupation to Krishna. What are the requirements for entering into that occupation? So Srila Prabhupada was primarily interested, Srila Prabhupada's primary interest was in the spiritual. And sometimes people say that Prabhupada said that 50% of his mission was Varnashram, but I was just uh, reading a post from Madhavananda. Do you know Madhavananda? Who uh, puts out all those scholarly newsletters? No? They're lovely. Anyway, he's one of our. Our very great ISKCON scholars, he was saying there's nothing recorded like that. Obviously, Srila Prabhupada thought Varnashram was important and helpful, but Prabhupada's main mission was developing bhakti. Because otherwise, Shrama eva you know, you can be perfect in material life, and if you don't have bhakti, what is the use? So, our main interest is the spiritual. Even if we don't get the material side of our life right. And at this point in society, in this age, getting this material side of your life right is pretty hard. It's pretty hard. You know, who's really going to have the protecting parents? You know, if we're talking about women in particular, how many women have fathers who really protect them? And they're nice, chaste, virgin girls, and they get married before they're 20 to a really first-class man who loves them and takes care of them. Is this going on? And the man takes care of her their whole life, and and he respects that she's a person and engages her according to her propensities and so forth. So, you know, a lot of us are not working on plan A. That's Plan A. Thank God, there's a Plan B. <laughs> and some of us are working on Plan Z. Right. So, but Prabhupada was more interested in the spiritual. I mean, he gave us the template for this is the ideal way to engage one's material propensities in Christian service. So to, that will make the internal spiritual life easiest. But you know, Prabhupada didn't say to people, Oh my goodness, you're already forty and divorced twice, you can't chant Hare Krishna because your Varnashram is already messed up. <coughs> Try next life. <coughs> Get your Varnashram together. So sometimes we hear people saying that, you know. Women can't preach unless all their varnashram stuff is totally together. And you're thinking, who has their varnashram stuff totally together? Who's the perfect Brahman and the perfect Satriya? perfect rahasta perfect rahmachana I'm sure there's some but not a whole lot so we're mostly interested in bhakti and even if one cannot get one's varna and ashram exactly right actually Prabhupada says in, in Nectar Devotion he said you don't even have to follow varna ashram he said whatever you're doing just offer it to Krishna so even if you're thinking okay well I'm a bank teller what am I am I you know, I'm some divorced woman taking care of two kids. Am I brahasta? Am I not What am I? No, oh, whatever you are, time But who cares? <coughs> Offer it to Krishna. If you can do it closer to the shastra, we'll do it. You know, it's not that if you have an opportunity to do it closer to the shastra, you should say, "Well, I don't care." If you can do it, please do it. But if you can't, doesn't really matter. The material side of things is just like what vehicle you're driving. Some people drive a skateboard, some people drive a bicycle, some people drive a motorcycle. I haven't seen very many motorcycles in South Africa. It's not a motorcycle culture, is it? Hmm? Yeah, I just spent five months in India. It's like everybody has a motorcycle. Come here, you're you see any. So whether you have a motorcycle, whether you have a car, whether you have a boat, whether you have a plane, what kind of car you have, right? Who cares? Drive it back to Godhead. You know? But we should do our, our, our best to have a society where we know the difference between matter and spirit. That's supposed to be level 1A, what is the difference between matter and spirit? We know the difference between matter and spirit, and on the spiritual level, we say there is according to taste and purification. And we know what that is. And on the material level, we say, okay, what's your propensities, what's your interest? what's your inclination? You're going to look at gender, you're going to look at age, you're going to look at physical abilities, you're going to look at mental abilities, you're going to look at emotional abilities. Then look at, at talents and skills and education and put all that together and say, okay, what are the kind of things that you could offer to Krishna? And one should to try to engage one's material abilities in such a way that one's directly spiritual activities are nurtured. As Prabhupada said, everyone should engage their life in such a way that they can remember Krishna at every moment. So we should set up some way for our occupation. And our family situation are dealing basically ashram is dealing with what's sexuality and what's renunciation. And Varna is dealing with how you eat. <laughs> how you get your food, how you get your shelter, and your clothes, and how you contribute to society. How society maintains you and how you contribute to society. And ashram is mostly how we deal with our material desires, especially our sexuality. So to find a way to deal with those things in such a way that our spiritual life is at the center. you know, Have those be like a nice vase or vase, whatever you say, to put the flower of your bhakti in. And you don't get your flower or bhakti, you know, that's the point? And that's the real thing. And even if you don't have a nice vase and if you just have a little paper cup, you can still put your flower We should try to arrange our lives in that way. And this, then, is the real respect for women. The real respect for women isn't just, you know, but it means treating women as a living being. A living being who has the same intrinsic right to worship God and who has, on the material level, a particular individual mixture in this life of personality and talents and abilities and desires. So, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> my dear Lord Brahma, know that anything and everything that is not related to me is simply my illusion. It is no reality, it is simply the reflection that appears to be in darkness. Slope the Chatter Sloka of the Thank you. Anyone else have any comments? Yes, pardon. So, to understand that just as the discredited Brahmins uh, utilize the, Varnash, the varna the system, the system to exploit everybody... Yep. ...that the patriarchal idea is also the same kind of thing. Can be. Just like the Brahmins are supposed to serve the society... The Brahmanas are supposed to they're, they're supposed to see themselves as the servants of society who help the other members of society achieve their highest potential. So the men are also supposed to help the women in that way. Protecting the women doesn't just mean making sure they don't get raped by somebody. I mean that's nice. I don't think any you know, none of us want to get raped by anyone. But it, protecting the women also means situating them properly. And if you if you use your position, I mean generally men do have more power than women, just the way of nature. And if if the men use their power to say that the women are just objects and they're here for my enjoyment or for as objects of my anger. Yeah. Um, I think in the what one is of this? the purports Questions? in the general pastime that probably explains that um, that, you know, according to Vedic time, you had to do a strategy chart <laughs> uh, um, I didn't know what you guys were passing around. I, I would have ended earlier. Yes, I'm sorry. But then sure, the Prabhupada at the bottom of that what, what says, but this doesn't apply to the girls and boys. So how do we understand, like... Um, My understanding there is he's talking about very, very elevated people among uh, beyond modes of nature because the Varnas are, de- are determined according to the modes of nature and we definitely see that with devoted boys and girls that it makes a difference there was a time in Iskan when we had deranged marriages not I arranged mean, marriages you're tall, you're tall, get married Sometimes your old Chantharai Krishna will be okay okay, this is a lovely question I'm not sure how relevant it is. (coughs) This also.
1: Whoa. I'm going to give
0: preference to to questions that are on topic. Hey, guys, come on. Okay, these are on topic. I mean, they're lovely questions, but just how you give the whole daily philosophy one one session? What is the future of women in ISKCON, in my opinion? Since there seems to be two schools of thought regarding the position of women, I think there's probably more than two. On the one hand, there are devotees who want to keep all women in the kitchen, unless they're giving money and others see women as spirit souls who should have the same service opportunities than the male devotees. I think the future of, of women in the world is not dependent on the opinions of any particular group of jivas. I, I don't believe that, that just some group of jivas with some opinion controls the destiny of the world. I believe that God controls the destiny of the world and that our destinies are formed individually by our own karma. So, my opinion, since I was asked, in your opinion, (laughs) um, I'm not sure how valuable my opinion is, but anyway, uh, in my opinion, the movement of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is going to conquer the world, whether anybody likes it or not. (laughs) And the question is, do I cooperate? Do I just stand by and watch? Or do I get in the way? And even if you get in the way, you know, river flowing down to the sea doesn't really care about anything that gets in the way. It goes over it, under it, around it, it just doesn't really matter. And my understanding of Mahaprabhu's movement is exactly what I explained, that the whole world would have facility for everybody, not only women, but everybody, to engage equally in pure spiritual activities, and would also have ways for people to use their material propensities in the service of the Lord, and eventually, mean this may take a long time, but would eventually fi- have ways of helping people learn how to use their propensities in the service of the Lord in an organized way, according to Shastri. He just can't help me. He's just itching when I'm to start the <laughs> There was a question here back time. Maybe You can organize that. So I just see it doesn't really matter. And, you know, some sometimes different people undergo different things as lessons. And sometimes the reason we don't see that everything is done exactly perfectly is that somebody has some lesson to learn. So maybe if in your last life you said that women should do nothing but be a domestic servant, then your next life you have to be a woman under control of a man, and that's what he says, I find a lesson. <laughs> and that may happen even if society in general is not like that. So different people have a different lessons. If women should be engaged according to their varna, should we see more women in higher management positions? in ISKCON? there seem to be more women members in ISKCON, but significant less women in management positions. Is this balance? Okay, well, there's different kinds of men. There's three kinds of management. There's Brahmin management, Sakti management, and Vaishya management. So Brahminical management is management of schools and temples. not huh, probably, generally, wanted temples run by married couples. And in that case, often, not always, but if both the husband and wife are of a verminical mentality, then the woman may also be engaged in verminical management. As soon as you start managing more than a temple or a school, as soon as you start managing a community, it's no longer verminical management. It becomes satri-management. It comes into a whole different realm. Satryas have to do things like make sure that people have enough water and enough food and then education and medical facility. They have, to, they have to take care of the material social welfare work, manage a lot of interpersonal relationships and things of that nature. Um, we have, I talked about this the other day, that we've really not developed this very much at all. So we do see also, and generally the satri is supposed to be married. Like Priyavata, when he was asked to give up being a renunciate, and run the world he got married and Prabhupada said he wasn't instructed by Lord Brahmat to marry he was instructed by Lord Brahmat to take up the duties of kshatriya but he understood that kshatriya needs to have a wife so the, the Ksatryani would also help manage so you didn't have in Vedic society very many people man- you didn't have very many women managing alone you didn't have very many men managing alone either <laughs> Do you know that the Brahmin it can't even perform many of the yagyas without a wife? You know that, right? So the has gotta rule with a wife. When Sita went went to the forest, to made a deity of Sita because he'd vowed never to marry anybody else. He couldn't do the yagyas without without his wife. So you know, I, I do think it's somewhat strange if just a single woman is in a management position, but in most places it's strange for a single man to be in a management position. Now, you do have some history of sannyasis managing temples or managing schools, but when sannyasis are managing temples, those are temples just of single men. It's more like they're managing a monastery. If they're managing a school, it's also going to be a school just of boys and you know, it's, it, it's not going to be the kind of temples we have in the Hare Krishna movement. And Prabhupada wanted the Brahastas to be managing. And then in business, again, you know, I mean, we, we have, certainly have successful uh, ladies managing business. And again, ideally, the husband and wife are managing the business together. And gen- the advice is generate wealth, etc., collect and redistribute wealth. So, again, of course, in our modern society, everything's nuts. You know, so many people don't even have a decent marriage, or even have a marriage. You know, so many people are going on and on and older and older in life, and they're not—they not even married. And then when people are married, they're often not married to somebody of the same temperament, and so forth and so on. But ideally, we should have brahmin men and women doing brahminical management, brahminical leadership. Satri men and women doing management of communities and villages, and Vaishya men and women who are managing agricultural uh, projects and uh, businesses. There's a Brahmachari manual published on the internet compiled by a Prabhu. By the way, the word Prabhu does not mean man. They're not Prabhus and Rajajis. That doesn't mean men and women, just Brahmatrimi. He gives various quotes by Prabhupada stating that women only need to be trained to cook, clean and sew, and look after the family. I guess he doesn't give the quote where Prabhupada says that Malati's daughter Saraswati should be trained to be a Sanskrit scholar as great as Jeeva Goswami. So he doesn't give that quote. He argues that women only need to learn to be good wives. How would you respond to this? By saying, why did you pick selective quotes, my dear Prabhu? <laughs> <laughs> what about the other quotes? That would be nice. <laughs> I mean, anybody can do that. Go to the Bhagavad Gita and pick the quote that says, "For one who's been dishonored, one who's been honored, honor is worth. One who's been honored, dishonors is. One who's been honored, dishonor is worse than death. Why don't you take that quote? Okay, everybody, work for honor. Yes, is that correct? Should we all work for the sake of honor? Did Krishna say that? Did Krishna say that? For one who's been dishonored. One who's been honored to be One who's been honored dishonors worth and death. And there she used to stand on the battlefield for your honor. Did he say that? Yes, he did. You guys got to read prophets books. <laughs> yes, he said that. So should our motive for action be honor? Why not? Krishna said that. There's context, huh? What? What about Krishna talking to Nanda Maharaj about why he should do the sacrifice for Govardhan Hill? You want to live by that? So you don't have to satisfy God. Everybody just gets the results of their own karma. Why do I sacrifice for him or any God? Should we live by that? Krishna said it? Yeah, quotes have context. They may be absolutely true, but they're still absolutely true in the context. <coughs> And Krishna says, one point, fight for honor, and then he turns around and says, fight without considering honor and dishonor. Doesn't he? So it's two opposite things. Yes? You know, sometimes, sometimes people will get these quotes, the Prabhupada never wanted us to preach vegetarianism. And they'll get quotes and say, Don't, we're not interested in vegetarianism, we're interested in prasadamism. I'm like, what about all these points about cow protection? And all these purposes, you can just become happy by protecting the cow, how terrible There's nothing about Krishna, it's just, don't kill him. So which quotes do you want to take? Do people believe that Prabhupada didn't want the women to read his books? We shouldn't know how to read. Only learn to be good wives and cook and clean and sew. Too bad for me, I can't sew. <laughs> but, you know, I try to... But are we not supposed to be able to read you a Prabhupada's books? Prabhupada wanted all the girls to read you a Prabhupada's books. Actually, it's interesting. Um, Ravinda Stripuru tells me how when his daughter was a little girl, that uh, Prabhupada saw her, and she was wearing a lot of bangles. And Prabhupada said, Oh, so many bangles, you should marry her to a satria. Then she started reciting Bhagavad Gita verses. He said, No, you should marry her to a Prabhupada. <laughs> and, you know, Prabhupada engaged the women... In translating, in distributing books. Prabhupada was very angry when women were taken off book distribution and sent to New Vrindavan to churn butter. Even though Prabhupada had written this letter to Kirtananda, engage the women in New Vrindavan in churning butter. And then there's another letter to Kirtananda what are you doing taking the women out of book distribution in the cities and bringing them to New Vrindavan to churn butter, get them back to the cities distributing books? So, you know, you want to take one of the quotes and not the other quote. Rigmini tells us how when she was 16 you know in, in, new, in the early days of the movement Prabhupada looked at the devotees and said each of you should go open a center and she said to Prabhupada even the girls Prabhupada said yes right. but then I can have that quote so they, they selectively pick the quotes you know or another great quote from the Bhagavad Gita is at the end when Krishna says to Arjuna now I've explained everything you deliberate on it and do whatever you like <laughs> how's that one I actually once met a, a man who said that's how I would buy. That's my quote. Really like, do whatever you like. <laughs> Krishna said, do whatever you like. a <laughs> 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 quote right from scripture. Actually the Christians have a saying, devil cite the devil can cite Shastra. And Prabhupada would say that. The devil can cite Shastra. So you can pull a quote from the scripture or a series of quotes to prove whatever you want. And I think it behooves us, please study the scripture. Please study the scripture. Please study the scripture. Otherwise, anybody can convince you with anything. And you won't know. You'll say, oh, that's a quote, and you won't know the context, and you won't know the other quotes. Can you elaborate on how women can become gurus but cannot become sannyasis? Yes. So Mahaprabhu said, whether you're... A shudra, or whether you're a brahmin, or whether you're this or that, you can be a guru. Guru, that guru is. This is again this material-spiritual thing. Come right back to what's a material thing, what's a spiritual thing. Sanyasi is a material thing, and guru is a spiritual thing. So one is only available to people according to the body, and one's available according to purity and and taste. Very simple. Otherwise, how can Lord Chaitanya say, even if you're a Shudra, you can be a guru? Does that mean that if you're a Shudra guru, all of a sudden, you're going to be doing Brahminical work? No. You're you're going to be doing Shudra work, but you're a guru. Otherwise, there's no meaning to say whether you're a Shudra or a Brahmana, you can become a guru. If as soon as you become a guru, you're not a Shudra anymore, then you wouldn't say, if you're a Shudra, you can become a guru. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Does that make sense? Prabhupada said, I want everyone to become a guru. Prabhupada did not say I want everyone to become a sannyasi but he said I want everyone to become a guru could you imagine if everybody became a sannyasi that would be a little weird <laughs> actually Mahaprabhu said I had one in my, in my presentation the other day I don't want all of you to become sannyasi some of you need to deal with the world and, 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 and Bhakti Siddhanta in that purport saying that sannyas and life, these are all external affairs you know that's that's something else I mean, a woman can, there are some women who have lived like sannyasis without being official sannyasis, like Gangamata or Prabhupada told he said, actually, you're living like a sannyasi even though officially you're not taking sannyas. So that may be, I mean, there are certain women in the Vanaprasa ashram that are practically speaking like sannyasis. But still, that's a material thing. But everyone can be a guru. Everyone's supposed to be a guru. Yes? Am I right? Does Prabhupada say want everyone to be a guru? I mean, you might not do it, but Prabhupada said everyone. He said we want 10,000 gurus. Okay. This question is, thank you very much. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Come on, you guys. <laughs> I mean, really seriously. These are cool questions, but... It's, it's like you guys have these questions that you've just been aching to ask somebody and so you're just going to write it down on the last day I'm here even if it has nothing to do with the class. Okay, the Varnas mentioned they dependent on birth or on karma. I was just wondering if the varna is found in the horoscope, wouldn't that be due to birth? Okay. Also, how can one figure out exactly what's there for Let's take the first thing first. So, yes, of course... Our birth has something to do when we say guna and karma. Karma means your work and it also means your destiny. So, yes, our particular occupation is influenced by our birth. But our our occupation isn't determined by our birth. Of course, it's influenced by our birth. Yes? I mean, and that may be a negative influence. It may be that our parents and our family had certain occupations and we were determined to do something different. I mean, that can also be the case. But it's not determined. You cannot say that just because your father and your mother is a this, that you're going to be a this. I mean, again, there's there's examples in the Bhagavatam where the children have different occupations than the parents. So when you say horoscope, horoscope is individual. What your horoscope is, it's... You know, Krishna doesn't arrange that you take birth and you just don't know anything about what's going on. What am I supposed to do? What am I like? Who am I? That's, that's what it's like in modern society. It's like you're know, trying to figure out still when you're 35, who am I? Because that's the next question. How can one figure out exactly was their varna? Like, I don't know. I'm lost. So again, there, there's there's guidance. You just have to know the language. It's, you know, if the instructions manual is only in Portuguese, you may not be able to read it. So Krishna gives an instruction manual with each individual, and one of them is on our own body. Right? the lines on your hands and on your feet—that that's an instruction manual. If you know, it, you have to know how to read it. You have to know the code, and then you can read it and say, "Okay, this is this person's propensity, and this is what they're likely to do, and so forth." And the other one is in the sky. So that when you're born, there's a con- certain configurations, and certain who knows how to read it will be able to say, "Okay, this person has this propensity, and this person has this propensity." This, it's kind of like the instruction manual comes. Then you say, maybe Krishna should have like had a piece of paper come out of the womb with the baby. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can talk to him about that for the next creation cycle, and <laughs> suggest that he do it that way. Now, of course, if you if you don't have much access, and, and we don't. We don't have a whole lot of access to people who are really good at reading the stars or reading the, the hymns. So how to, de- how to decide what your varna is so you see what makes you feel alive. And, and I would say to look at this in terms of um, specifics rather than big picture. So I just use an example of myself. One of the, One of the times that I was just the most happy in service it was soon after we, uh, we'd taken Vata Prastha. My husband was working in Denmark on a program called ISKCON Interactive, which was a multimedia uh, it was put out on a DVD, multimedia DVD to make money for my poor Temple and explained all aspects of ISKCON, a Prabhupada, in the society. I mean, it was just this and he had been talking about that for years, and he wanted to do something like that. And the person who was writing the text, there was some problem. And so he suggested to the authorities there that I could be flown to Denmark and work on the text. And our two younger children came. And I just was so happy doing that service. I was one of the happiest times of my life. So if I looked at it and say, well, what, I was, what made me happy was that I was writing a text for a DVD to make money for the Mayapur project, that wouldn't help me discover what was my varna. But I looked at it and said, what was involved? Well, first of all, it was all about Krishna. It wasn't about mundane things. The next thing is involved a lot of research. I had to do a tremendous amount of research. Then I had to take the research and rewrite it so it involved some creativity, and then I had to. This was this was the most strange thing. You know how in museums there'll be little plaques, you know, little piece of metal, and there's engraved about the, the the thing that you're seeing. And I never really thought about that before. But the way the program worked was, in most cases, there would be a box on my screen, and I had to put in that box the summary of whatever particular thing, you know, these 20 years of Srila Prabhupada's life, or what is karma all about, or how are the arts used in ISKCON, or something like that. I'd have to have some general category. I research it, and then I have to distill it and put it in a little box. And that was, it was very challenging. It was very mentally challenging. It was challenging as far as the content, but it was also, because you have to kind of boil down this content, but it was also challenging because of the words... You know, if you had one letter too much, it wouldn't fit. So you had to figure out how to, say, how to say it so that it fit neatly in the box. And it was like solving a puzzle. And I realized I really like solving puzzles. I really like kind of logical, intellectual challenges. And the other thing was that I didn't have a lot of other responsibility. So pretty much the rest of my life, was I didn't have to worry about other things in my life. I could just focus without distraction. I was just given what I needed and it was just I could completely focus. So then I saw and also I had a lot of, of freedom. So I was given the basic parameters of what needed to be done, but I had a lot of freedom to decide how it could be done. I didn't have somebody giving me details. And another thing is that I was part of a really nice team. And we were working as peers. I didn't I didn't have people like a real heavy authority over me. You gotta do this, you gotta do this, it wasn't it wasn't like that. You know, so I looked at all of those elements and I saw whenever I have something that has all of those elements, I'm very happy. And there were some other things too, you know, it was preaching, and it was, it was a, a number of other things. But my point is I broke it down to the elements and analyzed what were the elements of it. And I've seen, you know, if I can do something that's directly related to Krishna and involves some research, there's some intellectual challenges, some puzzle solving... I'm working with a really nice team where we work mostly as equals. You know, it's not a, a very hierarchical structure. There's, we agree upon a general idea, but yet I have a lot of freedom within that general idea to develop it as I want, that then I just, it's, it's just, I don't want to go to sleep, basically. I feel energized, I don't want to sleep, I don't want to eat, I just, wow, let me do this. So you can look at that. Find some time in your life you know when you felt really energized and alive, and and break it down into the pieces, because it's not that thing particularly, but what are the components of that thing? Were you mostly working with? Also, I was mostly doing a task. I wasn't mostly just working with people. So you know, am I mostly working with people? Am I mostly doing a task? What kind of a task is it? Is it physical? Is it mental? Is it you know following just some formula, or is it being creative? Do you understand what I'm saying? And you can look at, there's a lot of studies of personality when you can look at these kind of things. Now, I should also say that some of our nature is only going to be apparent in the right association with the right training. And that's what's tricky. Now, I had no idea I liked to teach until I met a different Jochemayi. to Lady Davy Gussie, <laughs> one of my shiksha groups. She taught me how to teach. She taught me the, the attitude to have toward teaching. She taught me how to. Teach. Before I met her, I had no idea that I liked teaching. None. Before I met her, if someone said, you know, would you like to teach? Yeah, you can. Would you like to teach kids? No way. I wasn't interested at all. But, and the right association with the right training is like something that was there, it was already there in me that I didn't even know about. And I had had, it wasn't that I didn't have opportunities, but because I didn't know how to do it properly, I didn't have the right mood, and I didn't know I had the right skills, I didn't know that I liked it. So sometimes finding out what one's nature and propensity is means getting in the right association, getting the right training. Do we dovetail our activities to match our varna? No, your varna is that doesn't you understand what varna is? Varna is is, is this category of our how you can you can a name that you can put on what nourishes you. The the best example I can give is of Ayurvedic diet. That according to Ayurveda, different foods give energy to different people, and the foods that give the, the same food that gives energy to one person doesn't give energy to another person. So our psychophysical nature is probably we call it is the same kind of thing. Certain sorts of activities will make you feel alive, and certain sorts of activities you just there's so some activities where we just can't even do practically. I mean, some, there are some things I try to do and I can't do them. I can't, I mean, I, I have the the technical ability to do them, but I just can't do them. I can't focus on them. You know, I'll do them for five, ten minutes and then I want to do something else. And I have to force myself. Okay, I'm supposed to do this. I have to do this. I'm going to try to do this. And I'm constantly distracting myself and finding something else to do. And it takes a million years to do it. And I just... Okay? So that's that. That's like food that doesn't nourish you. You're eating it, but you don't enjoy it. Even. You're eating it because somebody cooked it and wants you to eat it, and you don't like it. And you, oh yes, very good. Okay? And afterwards, you feel tired. And, and then there's some activities that we do. That are somewhere in the middle that we kind of like to do, and we can do them sometimes, and we can do them to some extent, and we get some pleasure out of them. And, you know They're okay, but we wouldn't want to do them a lot. And then there's other things that's like we can't get enough of them. We don't want to stop. Somebody says, it's time to do something else. Well, no, 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 let me finish. Take just another five minutes, okay? You know? Right? So that gives you a sense of what your varna is. And a well-done horoscope or a well-done palm reader will simply inform you of things that you may not have accessed is that because how, how are you going to find that? You can only find it in circumstances. You have to be put in a circumstance where you experience something to know. And if someone can look at your chart, they can say, Hey, it's very likely that if you're in this particular circumstance that you would just feel nourished in that circumstance. I mean if you're really good astrologer, which is hard to find. A really good palmist, Then they then they would actually be able to tell you very specifically that these are the kind of activities that will really um, nourish you and really make you feel happy. Should I read some? I'm not going to answer them, but I can read them, so you'll just see why I'm not answering. Them. It's not that I'm avoiding questions, but, but this is interesting. Lloyd Balaram usually accompanies the Lord. Would we be wrong in thinking that the white horse Lord Cocky Rise, would be Lord Balaram? <laughs> I have no idea. Because we are the spirit of Krishna and also have the material realm to use as evolution and practice and attachment, isn't the mind focus at times for some to use the deities as focus or helping to come into vibration or helping the spiritual growth? Yes, but that has nothing to do with the class. Um, How does one systematically lose enviousness towards all living entities again Something, please say something about how to take part in kirtan, what's really happening metaphysically during kirtan. A lovely question. I humbly request that you recite the fall of the Yadu dynasty from the Srimad Bhagavatam canto, if I'm not mistaken. So, those are lovely questions, and I wish that I could stay for another week and we could examine all of them, but I don't think that they were particularly related to uh, engagement of women in Krishna consciousness. So, hello. I just don't want you to think that like I'm avoiding some really good question because I want to avoid something. Yes, last thing, and that will be it. I have a quick question. Could you, uh, Could you, you? Quick questions don't necessarily mean they have quick answers, by the way. Is there a relationship between Lord Indra's promise side and the way he had to atone for it, and the inauspiciousness? Know related around women that Manu talks about in Dharam Shastras and the innate promiscuity of them? Now that's really a quick question, folks. <laughs> okay, you can you know what, it's 9.01, and I think it's time to okay. go to bed. Okay. Uh, can... That is not a quick question. That's a <laughs> half an hour. I may be quick, you ask the question in 30 seconds, but that's at least a 30-minute answer. So I don't pretend at all that I've answered every single possible question you could possibly have about women. Um, I did present a paper in 1988 at a meeting of devotee scholars in New Jersey on women that covers most of the points here. And since then, I've worked on that paper. It's now 40 pages long um, and added quite a bit to it. It's sort of a work in progress and it's not really at the point of distribution. If somebody would like to help me with it, um, where it is right now it, there's a bunch of places that needs scriptural references and I know what they are and I know where to find them but I just don't want to take the time so I've just highlighted all the places so if there's any of you that would um